The governor confirming that coronavirus has arrived here in Manhattan. How contagious is it? We, is it? we see all these images of people wearing those face masks. Are those effective? The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. I'm not a doctor, but I'm like a person that has a good, you know what. New York City, the epicenter of the pandemic in the United States. Bail out New York. You're not bailing out New York. New York has bailed you out. Welcome to the Imago Day podcast. My name is Luis Hernandez, and I am joined by the illustrious Professor Joseph Terry Joe. How are you? I am doing well. What is going on, everyone? I'm super excited to be back. Here we are. Today, we are taking a big picture look at the pandemic and the philosophical and theological ramifications that have kind of emerged during this past year. Um, and before we begin, Joe, I just want to say like it, it just feels good to be back with you and recording. I, I think it's like a great opportunity, not only for, for you and I to kind of just process everything going on and, and like mm-hmm. just ponder on our current reality, but it, you know, we're also inviting listeners out there to do the same. So it just feels good to be back. Yeah. I, I, I echo you, man, with that. It's, it really does feel great to be back and I'm just so, super pumped and excited to capture some of our own thoughts, uh, both that emanate from not only our minds, but our hearts conjoined, uh, especially with this, uh, experience that we've all had COVID it's a weighty one. And then, one that also invites further reflection. So really excited to kick off with this topic. What's so interesting about the pandemic is how universal of an effect that it had, like on every single person mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we each have like <clears throat> such unique individual experiences. And why don't you begin just like, you know, just contextualize uh your individual experience with yeah. this pandemic and also just any any moments that stood out or whatever to begin Absolutely. our conversation. Well, you know, I just loved uh, what you shared with regards to the the context of, of it being global, right? Um, in that sense, it was inescapable given all the media uh, outlets, you know, we had access to mm-hmm. and just experiencing this and still really experiencing much mm-hmm. of this in, in a global sense, recognizing, wow, this is not something particular and petite uh, with re- with regards to my own lived context and my own experiences. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who may not know, I, I dwell in a New York City area. I'm in Queens, but, you know, my heart is in Brooklyn as well. Let everyone know. <laughs> uh, what, what I love about this idea of the global is that one of the things uh, that, that come to me is, can I even think about my own experience of the pandemic in a way that was in a way that is divorced from the global context, because in one sense, you know, recognizing that this was happening, it seemed at the very least uh, in the here and now in a ubiquitous sense, in a universal sense, that, that, that definitely shaped and colored my own experience in the here and now of, of, of the pandemic. But for me in particular, uh, of course, some of the immediate shifts uh, were the closing down of schools. You know, I teach uh, at the college level and going from in-person instruction to Zoom university, it was like, what a shift, you know? Yeah. So yeah. just it, having that experience, trying to find my bearings, 
along with every other educator, K through 12, university professors, all of us just like, okay, like, what does this look like now? Um, and with that, the accompanying uncertainty and a bit of anxiety coupled with everything else that was happening, right? And, and, and the, it, it just it, it, being in my home here in Queens uh, and hearing the sirens, hearing the ambulance, literally at times every 10 to 15 minutes, you know, there was this feel of almost like an apocalyptic event occurring. And so with that, for me, I was like, all right, um, I, you know, I guess this is real. And of course, in one sense, um, I was cognizant that was it was real. I didn't need to hear the sirens, but there was something about the sirens and then the feel of everything and the closing of everything down that brought that 14 inches from my head to my heart. You know what I mean? Like, just like, oh, wow, this is real. Um, that with, okay, getting my mom to our home, my wife and I, cause she lives alone and I wanted to make sure she was okay. So the three of us were together for several months. That was an experience. Um, and just making sure she was cool. I was healthy. My wife was healthy, the extended family, uh, and all of that there. So there, there was this profound shift that was happening on a number of fronts, you know, educationally teaching. And then in my own research, you know, in my own doctoral work that I've been uh, carving out and, 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 and no longer having recourse to, to libraries and just ordering books and just kind of creating a nook, a space for me to do the deep writing and research that I've really essentially been called to over the past year and a half. Um, so <clears throat> it's been... It's been something. It's been something. Those are just some general remarks there about at least the initial wave of, of what took place. You're, you're being forced to conduct your classes <clears throat> mm -hmm. remotely, right? At the same time, you're having this experience of at 7 o'clock every day, the, the neighborhood coming together in solidarity for, for essential workers. Mm -hmm. How did you view the work that you were doing? Like, especially, I know that you thrive in person. Like, I, I've attended many of your, like, lectures, and I've seen you teach, and in person, like, you're the mm -hmm. man, you know? Like, it's amazing the, the camaraderie mm -hmm. that you create, the conversation you create in person. Now you're doing it all through Zoom, through a screen in between, um, and a bunch of boxes. Like, what sort of impact did that have on yeah. on you and your career? Did it change the way you looked at the work you were doing? And how did you look at that work in spite of um, the other industries that mm. we were seeing highlighted in the news and, and we were seeing all around us? You know, there were two things that were pressing on my heart. One being, how do I climb this learning curve that, that I am faced with now? Um, that is to say... How do I um, move from the visceral in-person experience of education uh, that I am so used to, like so many others, to this mediated screen, this, this, this platform that now has me removed uh, physically from others and the other way around. So just trying to figure out how that will look like. And, you know, for me, that wasn't uh, so much of an issue with regards to content. Um, I typically use uh, a series of PowerPoint slides and scaffolding material that was easily transferable to Zoom. 
not of course and and you know not to mention whether or not zoom was the ideal platform that was a whole thing you know what which platform should i uh use all the plethora of options so the the content uh um for me, wasn't such an issue in terms of adapting it to a new medium and a mode of communication. But for but I, I need I, I really was like, okay, but how do I now do this? You know, like how do I now engage my students? And of course, with other things that came with that, like, okay, some students chose not to put their screen, their cameras on, and now I'm talking to uh a, black screens or or names or whatever the case is and and how do i invite them to put it on without being overbearing and and what are the what's the protocol can i even do that what does that even look like some of them of course were not you know they were not comfortable for whatever reason maybe their home environment whatever the case is so for me it was the question of you know the learning curve of okay how do i do this you know how do i teach how do i engage in education uh through this new modality. But the second thing that was also pressing on my heart was really how how can I offer support? Um how can I be present to them? Of course, in one sense that is coextensive with the first thing that was on my heart. You know, how do I do this in terms of teaching? But I separated in my mind because, you know, I, ha- I have a pastor's heart. You know, I, ha- I have a heart that, that wants to be present uh, with others in solidarity, especially when they're experiencing some sort of discomfort, pain, disillusionment, whatever it may be. Um, and I wanted to be that kind of a teacher. And this is typically how I am anyways, my natural disposition as I teach, um, to be present for my students, to be a teacher for the other, to borrow a, a kind of phrase, a turn of phrase from uh, the, the, the German Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, I wanted to be a man for the other, you know what I mean? And so um, trying to figure out, okay, what does that look like again now <laughs> done on Zoom? And uh, thanks be to God, um, I learned a lot and I think uh, and still am, right, still teaching now on Zoom and and I uh, do so synchronously, a mix of synchronous teaching that means live and asynchronous, right? Where there's other material that the students can simply engage on their own. Um, you know, trying to find, okay, my voice, you know, now through this medium, my style. And, and it's, it's been so far successful. I, I, I think at least based on the surveys uh, of the students and, and, and some of the feedback. So yeah, that that was I, I think that that those are the two things that that I wrestled with and continue to in some respects. Last year, after the murder of George Floyd and subsequent murders of of African-American men and women, it sparked civil unrest throughout the country and um, eventually throughout the world. But to experience that in the midst of the pandemic kind of elevated it to a new, like a new type of platform. This was a unique type of experience 
during the pandemic. And so I want to ask you, Joe, like, what was your, what was your experience of the, the unrest, the, the Black Lives Matter movements, the ongoing protests that are happening? Um, what was your experience of that? And how did you kind of hold on to the tension of like, the civil unrest that's happening simultaneously during um, a very serious pandemic. Yeah, you know, you know, I speak as a man who is number one, you know, with regards to racial identity, Afro Latino. My father being African American, my mother Puerto Rican, and owning that in my own flesh and blood, owning that and experiencing that uh, in the in the visceral totality of my existential particularity coming out of a Mm -hmm. disenfranchised um, and marginalized neighborhood growing up and all of that there. So there's a part of me, a very large part of me that resonates deeply with the desire to scream, to act out even violently against what, what is perceived and many times are oppressors you know this this wanting to find a voice this wanting to find um a proper expression to say to the other whoever that other may be that hey i matter i am here um and even though you tend to not see me you will come to an awareness that i am and even if i have to resort to some kind of violent apparatus let's say um then so be it so there's a part of me that senses that and i can and i and i and i feel it and i can construe it within a certain narrative Mm -hmm. a certain reading of history a certain um philosophical assessment that is galvanized by my own experience Mm -hmm. Then, of course, there's the other parts of me um, that recognizes that there are other narratives at play and that there are other voices and other persons, right? And when I speak of a voice, I'm, I'm really here speaking code for person, right? Mm-hmm. That they, too, are longing for some form of humanization, some form of, of hey, here I am. And, and and know that I, too, am a person. And it is not my intention to do this or that to you. Or maybe it is, and I'm just confused. Or maybe it is because I'm precisely malicious and whatever the case is. And so, you know, I, I, I then, when all of this was happening, my, my, my default, my tendency is to kind of take a step back. Um, and, 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 I, and I mean that in terms of social media use, in terms of... Uh, platforms where I can quickly and easily put my voice out there and then and then kind of run the assessments, if you will, right? Um, kind of put on my own theo-philosophical hat on and, and read the social and <laughs> uh, social situation, you know, among other things. And so that was my disposition to, to be um, silent you know and 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 that that's not a sexy sexy thing you know what i mean to be silent precisely in a time when when it ought to be the exact opposite like no this is not the time to be silent and in fact if you're silent you're complicit you mm-hmm. know what i mean mm-hmm. and so what i mean by silence of course is not saying anything 
Uh, I don't mean that like, oh, I just chose to sort of, you know, opt out of the conversation. But what I mean by silence is not to have the kind of knee-jerk reaction that so many of us are are prone to, uh, and especially on social media. And then, and also what I mean by this silence is choosing not to, at least with uh, the natural tendency to scapegoat, you know, to find the cause and to say, ah, this is it. And then to render all other potential narratives null and void and just read this as such. So I, I think I, that was, my, you know, that's that's typically my default, my tendency there. And, and, and yet to have the conversations in my own home, you know, to have the conversations uh, with my friends and my family. And of course, in having those conversations, there's only so there's only so much one can do with regards to maintaining quote unquote silence, right? One's opinions and perspectives will begin to bleed forth and and say, well, this or that or the third. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, that's that that was at least from an intellectual assessment. It it just initially um the, that's what was happening. But in but yet at the same time, when I'm trying to maintain this sort of objective, whatever that may mean, uh, perspective, I was feeling it, you know, I was feeling it. And, and what I mean by that is I was angry. I felt angry. Here's another example of injustice. Here's another example of violence. Here's another example of a, of a, of a life taken. Um, and then also anger for others. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, I can imagine myself being, let's say, in NYPD, and I have many friends who are, um, and they would have nothing to do, let's say, um, with with the kind of injustices that we tend to uh, perceive in the media. And yet they're suffering this, right? Because one of their boys in blue did some stupid shit right and so now this repercussion is such you know and so um feeling for them and then feeling for different communities you know and Mm -hmm. and and this is part of the new experience given to us uh not only because of media but because of the prevalence and the immediacy of media and that we can have our own platforms right that we can influence hundreds and thousands um, so it, the concophony, as you said, becomes at an all-time high pitch, you know, and movements can be um, brought about with greater ease because of this. So with all of that there, I was like, man, this is this is a lot, you know, and I need to really think and I need to speak, but to do so carefully. Um, and of course, that's not a popular, um, I don't think that is, at least I don't experience that as a a, a, a sort of popular or maybe natural if we can use that language um disposition during such a time you know but that nevertheless that's that's something that i own and that's that's where i have been you know to what extent were you dealing with like just rampant misinformation in your interactions with families Mm. friends and loved ones like did you find that when you were having conversations with people that some type of misinformation came up, you know, like some type of facts, factoid, quote unquote, would be brought into the conversation. And you're just like, wait, that that doesn't sound right at all. Like, how, how prevalent was that during these conversations for you? You know, you know, Lewis, very much so very prevalent. And that is probably that was and it still is the most frustrating thing for me. You know, 
Um, and, and it's the reason why I tend to try to slow down and assess and speak and walk cautiously when, when, when everyone is up in arms, you know, because what happens is when we, especially given our own, you know, echo chambers, uh, the people that we're following and who follow us on Twitter, et cetera, it's easy to get, um, misinformation, Mm -hmm. you know, to, Mm -hmm. to get, to get a lie rather than the truth and then to wield the lie as if it is true and to boister one's own narrative and perspective precisely uh rooted in the lie which is unreality you know and so i'm just like oh come on guys let's let's think about this carefully so yes uh among my own friends and family um a lot of misinformation which then poses an additional challenge for me for a person like me because I want to be sensitive and compassionate, but I want to. I, I, I want to offer some kind of correction. In fact, they're not counter. They're, they're not in contradistinction. They're not. They're not in contradiction, right? Uh, offering a correction and being compassionate, right? Um, but to do so in a way that is sensitive, nevertheless. And so I, you know, I, I found myself in several conversations trying to um, stretch the the boundary conditions if we can if we can put it like that to try to stretch the boundary conditions uh um uh, of the conversation as it was and and offering different perspectives and and even correction uh when needed so yeah yeah, it was annoying (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i certainly hope that over the course over the course of our conversations that i'll Mm -hmm. learn from you how to wield compassion <laughs> in mm. the attempt to champion the truth because uh, I I value justice to the point that I don't mind yelling at a person <laughs> if I feel like they're just straight up lying or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, you know, we're called to love. And so I hope to, to learn some of those skills from you because that is not easy at all. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. And 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 of course what made this this whole situation so wild and and insane is that this is happening in the middle of a pandemic. That's the thing. It was like wait a minute, it's like freaking pandemic. And then and then of course, you know, the frustration that people had with regards to on both sides of the camp, right? Um, oh, enough with these masks. What are they doing? Enough with the social distancing. And then the others saying, no, we need actually more of this. Um, and so it, it, it lends itself to, um, at least for me, to think about all of this from a philosophical, from a theological perspective. And, and, and you know, the pandemic itself, um, you know, I was thinking about finitude. <laughs> I was thinking about our own limits. Because what what sickness does, right? What what disease brings about is a profound, profound reckoning with our own limits, our own finitude, our own contingency. Um, in an age by means of our own technological prowess, where we are many times duped thinking that we are somehow beyond our finitude, the, pandef- the pandemic offered us a rude awakening. It's like, wait a minute, this is real in the sense of my, my, the I, right? The self, my own limitations. I'm experiencing this sociologically, economically, right? Mm-hmm. On, on so many fronts, including the, 
the physiological and anatomical uh, level. And with the, 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 to speak of in a certain sense, the advent of this pandemic Mm -hmm. also brought with it a proleptic appearance of my own death, right? So I'm sitting there thinking, wow, yeah, this could be it, right? I can uh, get this uh, or Mm -hmm. a loved one, someone I love, some, some, you know, and, 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 and this, then the possibility brought about the, as it, you know, knocking on the door of my own existential uh, uh, reality and say, Hey, Joe, uh, your time is coming, right? Just essentially the reminder that I am finite, the reminder uh, that I am contingent, the reminder that there are profound limits, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this, this too comes out of a deep, out of the deep riches of the tradition of the, of the church, of Christianity, of to, 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 that is to say, remember your death, which is fascinating, right? Because when we think of remembering, right, to recall is something that has already taken place, yet our death has not yet taken place. But the proleptic appearance of death, that is to say, that which is from the future, coming into the present, into the here and now, um, positions us in such a way as to recognize, wait, wait a minute, this will be an inevitability. I mean, even if we were to somehow solve by means of eugenics or some wild uh, uh, science to solve, as it were, dying in terms of... Um, longevity we are nevertheless constituted by our finitude right i mean i can take some magic pill and oh now i'm gonna live forever and then i walk across the street and get hit by a mac truck and i'm dead right so death um is the sandwiching reality that is the bookmarks of my life if you will right in one sense you know the the unknown and the not yet known um surrounds me and yet at the same time in light of theology in light of grace in light of revelation my finitude is somehow upheld and sustained and even constituted in one sense right in an analogous way by means of the infinite right that i am uh continually Mm -hmm. upheld by the love of god by the grace of god and so the tension um Mm -hmm. for me particularly of the, you know, the pandemic, the tensions, plural, that came about, were really experienced in in those ways. My own thinking, sometimes writing about this, and then, of course, thinking about all of this in light of the passion of Christ, you know, of thinking about, you know, Mm -hmm. the experience of infinite love within the context of a profound finitude and limit, you know? My God, my God, Mm -hmm. why have you forsaken me? And yet precisely this is the time when God is reconciling the world to himself through the blood, through the flesh, through this one Mm -hmm. who is God, yet fully man, being torn asunder and given to us to receive his body and blood, right? And to continually enact and recapitulate that in every holy sacrifice of the mass, in every act of worship and adoration, you know? Um, so it's a, it's a cosmic mm-hmm. thing. And, and, and all of this is afforded to me by grace. It's a gift, right? It's a gift that I have this little awareness that I can reflect on this, that I have yeah. 
recourse to some books and some thoughts. I, I actually, I, I wanted to, um, I want to challenge um, what you shared from based off of an experience that I was having um, around like December through early February. Um, I, I went back and I was looking at some of the CDC stats um, and it was during this mm. time that there were approximately between December and early February, there was 30 days in which the daily death toll exceeded 3000 deaths. And that's around mm -hmm. the amount of people who, who died on um, September 11th, the September 11th attacks. Mm -hmm. And um, this is, I, to me, it was almost like there was an absurdity to that amount of, of death in such a short amount of time. And I remember feeling very, very down, very sad um, at the absurdity of it all because I remember at when I was 10 years old experiencing the events of September 11th, there was a level of, of unity um, and connection through the grief that I felt in my neighborhood, through the, my city and... and and that was based off of a terrorist attack that happened over the course of one day during this pandemic. And this is like, there was more deaths in between those days as well, too. They just didn't exceed 3000 deaths. But the fact that there was mm -hmm. 30, 30 of those days in which 3000 Americans died, I'm not even talking about the global figures. It, right. It, it created like this level of nihilism. You know, there was times when mm -hmm. I, to be honest, I, I did not necessarily see God in the midst of all that death. Um, yeah. I did not see yeah. the the bigger picture or, or the, the potential hope and glory to come from yeah. the experience of these really dark moments. And so I wanted to present that to you, like, especially in light of, of what you shared. And, and I want to ask you, like, what do you, what do you think about that? What, what was your experience of that really what a, what dark a, period? Yeah, yeah what, a, what a real um, statement. And I mean that with all seriousness, you know. I, 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 I find it sad. Um, understandable. It's understandable to me, but it's sad and, and somewhat annoying when the religious, the pious, the faithful seek to not raise the question <laughs> mm -hmm. of how can an all good, all loving, omnibenevolent, right? All good, all loving, all powerful God allow mm -hmm. such a thing. Like what, what, like what manner of absurdity as you put it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this of course raises the, the quintessential uh, challenge to theism, to, to belief in God. This is the problem to be dealt with and it cannot be dealt with by recourse to theodicies that is to say with reasons that seek to get god off the hook just like mm -hmm. that um mm -hmm. you, you know I, now i'm not trying i don't want to throw the baby out with the bath bath water we want to think about these things we want to reflect on potential theodicies uh, that is to say potential uh, um, explanations, but always with the recognition that there is an infinite mystery at the heart of all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and to do so 
with the recognition that this is not only an intellectual problem, but an emotional one. And that's what makes the problem of suffering and evil all the more potent. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's not just a puzzle um, that we can dispassionately reflect upon, but it's something that strikes at the very heart of our own lives. You know, it's there's something profoundly visceral about this. And so those two things need to be held uh, together to do this well. And of course, uh, you know, in the span of a podcast and, 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 and who am I that I can offer a few things here. But th- I'll say this um, without going too deep into the matter. This is why the crucifixion is so important in my mind um, as a Catholic, as a Christian, as, as a theologian, as a philosopher, because it takes very seriously it shows at the very least, it takes very seriously, that God takes very seriously, I should put it like that, um, suffering and death. And that in somehow, mm-hmm. in some weird, ironic, paradoxical way, the very life of God, the very infinitude of God is expressed precisely through suffering and death, which which raises the bar, right? It's like, wait mm-hmm. a minute, wait, well, you know. I'll also say this, um, that, you know... 3,000 deaths, 50 million deaths, one death, in my mind, is absurd. The Mm. death of a single person, of an individual, who is a universe unto herself, himself, you know, who is the sum total of their own hopes and wishes and experiences. There is an absurdity with the death of a single individual. Um, And sure, it, it... propounds it it compounds the problem uh when we multiply that when we think about multiple deaths but for me the absurdity is even death itself um and again the way in which it in some sense colors and perhaps even constitutes all of our lived experience you know death and dying and suffering Mm -hmm. it's inescapable and ubiquitous in that sense um and yet god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and yet mm-hmm. God, you know, um, and and how death, burial, resurrection, you know, that that tripartite, you know, that that death, burial and resurrection cannot be divorced. They cannot be separated. Right. One cannot speak of resurrection and the life of God without the death of God, mm-hmm. without the death of the singular other, without the death of the disenfranchised and the marginalized. Now, what does that actually mean practically and theoretically? How do we think through those things are, of course, bigger issues. But you are in good company, you know, Lewis, and and me and all of us who experience the absurdity of it, who experience even the, you know, dare I say, a kind of temptation to a an atheism, or at least an existential nihilistic framework, where all of my hopes and wishes, all of the ones that I've placed in, right, this one, whom I followed, whom I left everything to follow, now dies before my eyes on a Roman, on a goy, on a goyim, on on a Gentile Mm -hmm. execution machine, this Jewish Messiah, Uh, you know what I mean? mm -hmm. Um, Where's God? You Mm -hmm. know, how? And yet, as Christians, on this side of the resurrection, we rejoice and we uphold the cross. We say, no, God is actually doing a deeper work. What is it? What could God be doing? What justification for this? 
if we can answer that, we could, we, we'll be in a different place, right? Um, this is not to uh, expunge the mystery, to, to do away with it, but to recognize that the mystery is not an absurdity, but that which transcends our basic rational capacities. Transcends, not negates. So at the heart is really the following. Either we believe or we are left to absurdity. We are left to a nihilistic framework, to nihilism itself. And those are the options. Those are the options. Um, Nietzsche said this in, in obviously so many different ways, I think very beautifully. And um, any other potential option is actually a non-option. It's only faith or death. (laughs) It's only faith or nothingness. Mm -hmm. And when we think of nothingness and we think of absurdity, that's all the way down, bro. That's like all the way down. I I feel like the, the when you said, where is God in this? That's kind of like, the question for this podcast um you know we're hoping each week to we're going to be touching upon many different aspects of of societal life and i think the heart Mm. of the matter is where is god in this and i appreciate you joe thank you so much for for sharing um about your experiences during this technically ongoing pandemic and also just kind of illuminating just different sides um, to the statistics and the data and the, the emotions that you and I have both felt during this experience and, and the listener as well. Um, there's a lot to ponder there yes. and, and just kind of answering where is God in this? Absolutely. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing too with me, bro. Thank you. Yes.